July 2nd, 1986. In Los Nogales, a working-class neighborhood in the Chilean capital of Santiago, Rodrigo Rojas was loading film into his camera. The 19-year-old had recently returned to Chile after spending nearly a decade in exile in the United States. Rojas grew up hating President Augusto Pinochet from afar, hearing the horrible details of men and women being tortured and murdered for their political beliefs. He knew that the only way to spread the word of Pinochet's atrocities was through his camera lens. Today, he was going to photograph a protest. All of a sudden, an army patrol unit ran in to break up the demonstration. Rojas and a protester, Carmen Quintana, were taken into military custody. For several minutes, the soldiers beat both Rojas and Quintana mercilessly. When the beating finally stopped, there was hope that they'd be released. But then the two felt a liquid being poured all over them, followed by the sound of a lighter. Rojas and Quintana were lit on fire. When the flames were finally extinguished, their bodies were thrown into a ditch north of Santiago. Four days later, Rojas died, and his death would bring the relationship between Augusto Pinochet and the United States to the brink of collapse. Welcome to Dictators, a ParCast original. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Dictators for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Dictators in the search bar. Today we continue our look at General Augusto Pinochet. From 1973 to 1990, Pinochet ruled over Chile with a brutality that left tens of thousands missing or dead. And it all happened with the support of United States intelligence. This week, we'll dive into the aftermath of the Orlando Letelier assassination and how it affected Pinochet's relationship with the United States. Then we'll see how after nearly two decades of military dictatorship, the citizens of Chile said no to eight more years of Pinochet. We'll explore the aftermath of the Orlando Letelier assassination right after this. On the morning of September 21, 1976, 44-year-old Orlando Letelier's car exploded in Washington, D.C. Letelier was the Minister of Defense under Salvador Allende, the former president of Chile. Since the 1973 coup that ousted Allende, Letelier had been living in exile as an outspoken critic of the new military junta. The head of that junta was 60-year-old General Augusto Pinochet. Pinochet's regime was characterized by terror. Thousands of men and women were arrested and tortured, the majority never to be seen again. All of this served the supposed goal of eliminating communism in Latin America. But Letelier's assassination wasn't an isolated event. It was part of a larger, secret campaign known as Operation Condor. Chile and five other South American countries had agreed to work together covertly to destroy any shred of Marxism in the region. And they had the backing of the United States. 
Most importantly, the U.S. provided a communication channel. Essentially, the U.S. made it easier for these countries to share intelligence, and in turn, easier to eliminate their enemies. For Pinochet, the assassination of Orlando Letelier all the way in America proved that he was able to kill his enemies anywhere on the globe. And he thought with Letelier gone, his problems abroad would cease. He was wrong. To many Americans, it seemed improbable that such a prominent foreign national could be murdered in broad daylight and in such a violent way. Congressmen from both sides of the aisle were horrified. Almost immediately, Pinochet was blamed. U.S. senators condemned the regime. This was just another example of the human rights violations that had allegedly been occurring since Pinochet took over in 1973. And the United States could have prevented it. Declassified documents revealed that Secretary of State Henry Kissinger was aware that political killings were a major part of Condor. By mid-1976, he realized that the killings were becoming excessive and harming South America's image. In a memo to ambassadors in South American countries, he wrote, counter-terrorist activity of this type would further exacerbate public world criticisms of the governments involved. However, for reasons that remain unclear, Kissinger never put an end to the operation or the covert assassinations. This caused confusion among ambassadors in South America who were waiting for their orders. On September 20th, 1976, the Assistant Secretary for Inter-American Affairs sent a cable to his deputy telling him to do nothing. He ordered him to simply instruct the ambassadors to take no further action. Less than 24 hours later, Orlando Letelier was dead on U.S. soil. For nearly a year, Pinochet believed he had gotten away with the murder. He vehemently denied all connections to Letelier and even blamed extremists on the left as the real perpetrators. But in late 1977, an FBI investigation concluded what everyone already knew. The Chilean government was responsible. In particular, Pinochet's secret police, the DINA, led by Colonel Manuel Contreras. Shockingly, the new U.S. President Jimmy Carter did nothing in response to the FBI's findings. Carter even invited Pinochet to the White House in September 1977, where he mentioned his human rights concerns, but did not accuse the dictator of any crimes. But back in Chile, members of the junta were frustrated with Pinochet. They understood how Contreras and his Dina squad had damaged Chile's image at home and abroad. Reform was needed immediately. With his back against the wall, Pinochet agreed to not just remove Contreras from Dina, but to dissolve the organization entirely. He replaced it with a more restrained version called the Central Nacional de Informaciones, or CNI. This was too little too late for Pinochet. Soon, the FBI made another shocking discovery that brought U.S.-Chile relations to the brink of collapse. In spring of 1978, the FBI discovered that one of Letelier's assassins was a U.S. expatriate living in Chile named Michael Townley. If you recall from last week, 
Townley had been involved in multiple Condor assassinations before this. Since Townley was an American citizen and had committed an act of terrorism on U.S. soil, the U.S. wanted him brought to justice. Pinochet resisted the idea at first, but after a few weeks of tense negotiations, he finally agreed to extradite Townley. Townley didn't hold out long during questioning. By the end of April, he directly implicated high-ranking officials within the DINA, including his former boss, Manuel Contreras. In September, the U.S. demanded Pinochet hand over Contreras. Pinochet refused. With foreign relations at a crossroads, several members of the junta began to believe that Pinochet was overstepping his authority, especially one of the 1973 coup's leading architects, General Gustavo Lee. For years, Lee had quietly worried that Pinochet was becoming too powerful, and with Chile's image tarnished thanks to the assassinations and human rights violations, perhaps it was time for the problem to be removed. In the spring of 1978, Lee aired his frustrations to the press. Worse yet, he suggested a timetable for an end to the junta altogether. This was not the most careful approach to the situation, and the ramifications came swiftly. On July 24th, Pinochet demanded Lee's resignation. When Lee refused, Pinochet simply proclaimed him incompetent and removed him from the junta. Pinochet had dismissed a high-ranking officer simply because he wanted to. Junta members never again questioned who was in control. However, Pinochet probably knew deep down that even though he called himself president of the republic, he still wasn't legitimate. He hadn't been elected by the people in accordance with the 1925 constitution. But right after the 1973 coup, the junta had suspended the constitution. In Pinochet's view, that document was obsolete. So in 1980, he had a new one drafted that gave him even more power. Piece by piece, he was doing away with the idea of the junta and making himself the sole leader of Chile. But instead of consolidating power on his own, Pinochet offered another somewhat shocking solution. He would let the people decide through a referendum. Pinochet had a strong feeling that the people were on his side. Despite the reign of terror that had become synonymous with the name Augusto Pinochet, many still saw the 65-year-old despot in a positive light. For the wealthy and middle class, the Allende years had left scars that never seemed to heal. Pinochet was the only line of defense to stop Chile from falling back into socialist hands. And by the late 1970s, Pinochet had the benefit of a strong economy. As we mentioned last week, the Chicago Boys, a group of free market economists who'd studied at the University of Chicago, were essentially given free reign over Chile's economy. They enacted a series of policies known as shock treatment. Essentially, Chile slashed most regulations on businesses, cut up to 25% of government spending, and auctioned off state industries. The copper mines were the only field that remained in government control. These new reforms stabilized Chile's shaky economy. According to Pamela Constable and Arturo Valenzuela's book, A Nation of Enemies, Life Under Pinochet, 
By 1979, the fiscal deficit had been eliminated and annual growth rates were averaging 6.5%. Inflation had dropped to 65% by 1977 and production climbed 8% in 1978, reducing unemployment. The result was a wave of national consumerism. Imported goods came flooding in, especially expensive scotch, French cosmetics, Italian refrigerators, and Japanese radios. For the first time in nearly a decade, Chile's economy was actually prospering. The timing couldn't have been better. Not only was Pinochet able to run on a booming economy, but he was also able to distract the people from deteriorating relations with the United States. Toward the end of 1979, the U.S. instituted economic sanctions against Chile. The U.S. also supported U.N. resolutions condemning Chile's human rights violations. But the average Chilean may not have been aware of the international friction. The message at home was clear. A vote for Pinochet was a vote for economic success and against the evils of socialism. On September 11, 1980, Chileans overwhelmingly voted yes to the new constitution. Augusto Pinochet was granted eight more years as president, after which a referendum would be held to decide whether he'd remain in power. In his acceptance speech, Pinochet declared, for a second time, we have defeated the totalitarians. Coming up, Pinochet gets his second wind and relations between Chile and the United States begin to improve. Now back to the story. In September 1980, Augusto Pinochet was officially voted into office for another eight years. Since the 1973 coup, the 65-year-old despot hadn't technically been the president, at least according to the Constitution. But that all changed when he was officially elected under a new Constitution. The good news kept coming for Pinochet. A few months after his big win, the United States elected a new president themselves the anti-communist crusader Ronald Reagan. Like Pinochet, Ronald Reagan vowed to bring down communism and terrorism, not just at home, but across the globe. And it seemed he was willing to overlook Pinochet's human rights violations to see that mission through. Reagan seemingly believed the Pinochet propaganda, that leftists were actually the ones behind Orlando Letelier's death. In 1978, on his nationally broadcast radio program, Reagan said, A question worth asking is whether Letelier might have been murdered by his own masters. Alive, he could be compromised. Dead, he could become a martyr. With the tones set for the new administration, Reagan immediately got to work repairing relations with Chile. One of the first things he did after his 1981 inauguration was end the U.S. sanctions against Chile. The administration also reversed course when it came to voting on U.N. resolutions concerning Chile's human rights violations. One of the most significant moves Reagan made was abolishing the Kennedy Amendment. In 1976, Senator Edward Kennedy had successfully lobbied Congress to ban all military sales to Chile in response to human rights violations. But in the fall of 1981, the Senate, at the behest of Reagan, was able to repeal the ban. However, the final version of the bill came with stipulations that were expected to be followed. 
First, that Chile no longer sponsored terrorism. Second, that Chile rectify its human rights violations. And finally, that Chile would comply with investigations into the Letelier assassination. While most people in Reagan's administration were more than willing to certify the stipulations without evidence, some had reservations. Among them was Elliot Abrams, Assistant Secretary of State for Human Rights and Humanitarian Affairs. Abrams wasn't against selling arms to Pinochet, far from it. However, he and members of the Department of Justice and FBI knew that Chile wouldn't meet any of the demands in the bill. And if word got out that Pinochet was still violating human rights, which he was, it could be a major scandal for Reagan. Chile wasn't the only factor at risk here either. Reagan had begun his war on communism by selling arms to the El Salvadoran military as they fought against leftist guerrilla groups. Blowback from Pinochet would put that operation at risk too. Fearing a loss of credibility, Reagan put off certifying arms sales to Chile. It isn't clear how much Pinochet knew about these behind-the-scenes machinations, or if he had any time to care about what was going on in Washington, because the soaring Chilean economy was suddenly taking a dramatic fall, sending the country into one of the worst depressions in its history. The drastic turnaround of the Chilean economy was described by economist Milton Friedman as a miracle. But it was all smoke and mirrors. Chile's economy relied heavily on foreign loans and investments. By 1981, that foreign debt amounted to $15.6 billion, more than double the debt from just three years earlier. At the same time, imports had increased 128%, while exports decreased by 8%. Which means Chileans were buying foreign goods, but no one was buying Chilean goods. Adding to Chile's woes was the fact that as part of the shock treatment, there was a sprint to privatize multiple industries. In doing so, government regulation went out the window. Banks had carte blanche with these new companies, allowing them to exploit their need for loans and charge them high interest rates. With businesses taking out loans based on shaky collateral, many were forced to file for bankruptcy or shut down their factories during the downturn. According to A Nation of Enemies, Chile under Pinochet, by the end of 1981, bad loans made up 25% of the total capital and reserves of banks. And as if things couldn't get any worse, mineral prices were decreasing around the world. For Chile, this meant that one of their most important exports, copper, was worth much less. No one, from businessmen to skilled laborers, was immune to the sudden recession. In 1982 alone, 30% of factory jobs, 44% of jobs in the mines, and 62% of construction jobs were gone. Between 1980 and 1983, over 2,000 businesses declared themselves insolvent. To make ends meet, many highly skilled workers were forced to take menial jobs, like taxi driving or bicycle repair. For Augusto Pinochet, 1982 was one of the worst years of his presidency. Giving the Chicago boys complete control over economic policy had proven devastating. He knew he needed to make changes. 
Ironically, they would echo the reforms of his socialist enemy, Salvador Allende. Pinochet replaced the Chicago boys with a single man, Rolf Luders, as economics minister. In the beginning of 1983, Luders proclaimed that while he didn't support the idea of the government meddling with businesses, some solution was desperately needed for the current situation. His solution? Controlled the banks instead. Three banks were liquidated because their debt was greater than their reserves. Five other major banks were placed in government hands. In order to bail them out, the government was forced to renegotiate the bad loans, increase import duties, and increase the gas tax. These moves caused foreign lenders to panic over whether Chile would default on their loans. The Chilean government confidently promised that they could pay what they already owed and could continue to do so in the future. Of course, most of the people actually footing the bill were the taxpaying citizens. And by the middle of 1983, those taxpayers had finally had enough of the rampant corruption within the Pinochet regime. Since the 1973 coup, the remaining socialists and communists who hadn't been killed or arrested had been forced into hiding. Opposition leaders, labor leaders, and college students alike knew it was better to keep their mouths shut. But with the economic despair of the early 80s, the left saw an opportunity to fight back. In May 1983, organized labor leaders did the unthinkable. They called for a nationwide general strike. No one knew what the response would be, and after a decade of brutal oppression, it's likely that only minimal participation was expected. Instead, on May 11th, Chileans brought the entire country to a screeching halt. Thousands upon thousands of people walked off the job and marched through the streets. In Santiago, the protest lasted well into the evening. It didn't stop there. For five months, Chile was consumed with protests, marches, and strikes. For the first time ever, the people boldly and publicly expressed their displeasure with Pinochet. Translating that anger into actual change was a more difficult problem. The left was disorganized with various socialist, communist, and democratic parties. And workers who participated in the strikes could be fired or arrested, forcing people to reconsider their participation in the protests. But the strikes had at least spurred Pinochet into action. He figured that if he could fix the economy, then perhaps the protests would stop. After a couple of fits and starts, Pinochet finally installed yet another new finance minister, Hernan Bihi, in 1985. While Bihi was very much a free market advocate, he wasn't afraid to use the government as a tool to help failing businesses if needed. He implemented more regulation, especially in banking and agriculture. And he figured out a way to renew the confidence of foreign lenders by agreeing to debt equity swaps. Essentially, investors agreed to pay off Chile's debt in exchange for a piece of various state industries. Within a year, the World Bank was back to approving massive loans, which in turn inspired foreign lenders to invest in Chilean industries. Older manufacturers were also able to adapt to the changing markets. For example, as Constable and Valenzuela explain in their book, collapsing textile companies were merged together to produce higher quality cloth for export. 
and a Fiat assembly plant was turned into a refrigeration facility for produce. Behe's policies put Chileans back to work. And by 1988, the unemployment rate fell under 9% for the first time since the mid-1970s. However, many of these workers were earning far below minimum wage. Installing him was arguably the smartest move Pinochet made during the 1980s. But to the socialists and communists, the economic turnaround wasn't enough. The thousands who had died or disappeared would never be forgotten. And as they continued their fight, Pinochet's violent response would put him at odds with his most important ally, the United States. Coming up, Chileans decide they've had enough of Augusto Pinochet. Now back to the story. After a brief but costly economic depression in the early 80s, Chile's economy had once again managed to bounce back. And Augusto Pinochet finally accepted that unfettered capitalism had done more harm than good. But to the leftists, removing Milton Friedman's cronies from the finance department wasn't enough to make up for years of torture and murder. Pinochet was still a brutal dictator who needed to be brought down at all costs. The most radical leftist groups, especially the communists, decided to answer Pinochet's violence with violence of their own. Between 1985 and 1986 alone, over 1,000 bombings were reportedly committed by guerrilla groups. The CIA closely monitored Pinochet's reaction to the communist violence. And despite the Reagan administration's anti-communist dogma, even they saw that supporting Pinochet could irreparably damage America's image, especially since it went against the newly established Reagan doctrine. In February of 1985, Reagan proclaimed that America would support freedom fighters in the quest for democracy against Soviet-style tyranny. Essentially, it was the very same justification for supporting the Contras in Nicaragua. Pinochet represented exactly that kind of tyranny. He was just as authoritarian as the Soviet Union. It was obvious there wasn't going to be a democracy in Chile with Pinochet at the helm. Open-armed support for him would make Reagan look like a hypocrite. But Reagan still wasn't ready to give up on Pinochet just yet. Instead, he hoped to influence Pinochet into granting more democracy to Chileans. In the fall of 1985, Reagan made his intentions known in a personal letter to Pinochet, delivered by Ambassador Harry Barnes. Although Reagan was still committed to ending communism, he told Pinochet, I feel even more strongly than ever that evident progress toward full democracy in Chile is needed. But Pinochet had no desire to give up his power. He once called the border along Argentina, my border, and the government's treasury, my pockets. It was obvious that he didn't care about the people of Chile as much as remaining in complete control. Between the human rights violations and the clear lack of support for democracy, the United States knew a breaking point was near. It came in July 1986. Rodrigo Rojas was 10 years old when he and his family fled Chile for the United States. In May 1986, the 19-year-old Rojas dropped out of high school and returned to Santiago to participate in the demonstrations against Pinochet and to document them with his camera. 
On July 2nd, Rojas participated in a demonstration on the outskirts of Santiago. Suddenly, he and another protester, 18-year-old Carmen Quintana, were surrounded by soldiers and beaten without provocation. The soldiers doused Rojas and Quintana with a flammable substance and lit them on fire. Their bodies were discovered later in a ditch north of Santiago. They were taken to a rural medical clinic without a burn unit, and the military refused to let them be moved to a major hospital. Four days later, on July 6th, Rodrigo Rojas died. Quintana survived, but was left heavily scarred. Because Rojas was an American citizen, the murder was widely reported in the American media. Politicians in Washington, D.C. were completely shocked by the senseless act of violence. But Pinochet refused to take responsibility. He proclaimed that Rojas and Quintana were leftist terrorists who were set on fire by their own Molotov cocktails. And then, for seemingly no reason at all, Pinochet announced that he was going to stay in power through to the end of the century. Even for Reagan, the time had come to sever ties. On July 10th, Elliot Abrams announced on Nightline that the U.S. would like to see free elections in Chile sooner rather than later. In a memo to Secretary of State George Shultz, Abrams wrote, The bottom line is we face a worsening situation in Chile and need to use all available means of influence to protect our interests. Those means of influence were used in full force during Chile's 1988 referendum vote. It was a simple yes or no vote. Yes, the people wanted Pinochet for another eight years, or no, they didn't. If the no's won, then an actual presidential election would take place and a new government would be installed in March 1990. Pinochet assumed that the yes campaign would win in a landslide not only was the economy booming, but he was using the military to intimidate the opposition. No campaign offices were bombed, rallies were infiltrated, and campaign leaders and activists were rounded up and arrested. But what Pinochet didn't know was that the No campaign had a secret donor, the USA operating under the guise of what Reagan called the National Endowment for Democracy. Roughly $1.6 million was funneled into the opposition in an effort to oust Pinochet. But the U.S.'s most significant contribution was stopping potential violence on voting day. In May 1988, U.S. intelligence learned that Pinochet's security forces planned to intervene if the no's were leading in the polls. The Intel report stated that in that scenario, the elections would be suspended declared invalid and postponed indefinitely. The Reagan administration stopped short of threatening a military intervention, but according to Peter Kornblue, author of The Pinochet File, the tone they used with the junta officials made it very clear that the United States wasn't playing around. On October 5, 1988, Chileans stormed the polls, and with 98% of the country turning up to vote, it was clear that the majority was tired of a military dictatorship. The final outcome? 54.7% no, 43% yes. The dictator had fallen, not through violence, but through the power of the ballot box. 
Pinochet didn't plan to take no for an answer. That evening, he called an emergency meeting of junta leaders, seeking a plan to nullify the results. But to Pinochet's shock and dismay, the rest of the junta refused to cooperate. They accepted the democratically chosen outcome. Pinochet begrudgingly accepted his defeat, but he would still remain president until March 1990. He had a year and a half to shore up as much control as possible until the new president was inaugurated. Pinochet was able to install nine judges to lifetime positions on the Supreme Court. He bribed six of the former justices to retire early. And while the two leading presidential candidates were calling for the secret police to be abolished, Pinochet had his own plan. Instead of dismantling the CNI, he incorporated it into army intelligence where it would remain under his control. As a gesture of reconciliation, Pinochet was allowed to remain commander-in-chief of the army until 1998. In 1989, the Christian Democrat candidate Patricio Aylwin was elected the new president of Chile. Aylwin's win launched a center-left majority in the new Chilean legislature. The people were tired of a one-party authoritarian rule. On March 11, 1990, Patricio Aylwin was officially sworn in as the new president with Pinochet at his side. As he strode from the dais to his limousine, the attendees pelted the former dictator with tomatoes and eggs. After his resignation, Pinochet negotiated with the civilian government to avoid prosecution for any crimes he may have committed. Even though President Aylwin established a commission to investigate the regime's human rights violations, Pinochet was exempt from punishment. But the United States still had one item they wanted resolved. Under President George H.W. Bush, the U.S. renewed efforts to seek justice for Orlando Letelier. This likely led to the long overdue conviction of Dina Head, Manuel Contreras, in 1993. Contreras spent the rest of his days in and out of prison for various crimes he'd committed for the Pinochet regime. He died in 2015 while serving a 526-year prison sentence. In the years that followed Pinochet, Chile managed to flourish, but the specter of the junta remained. For nearly a decade, Pinochet was still head of the army. In March 1998, 82-year-old Pinochet resigned from the army and was promptly sworn in as senator for life in accordance with the 1980 constitution. But if he thought his life would continue in relative tranquility, he was wrong. In October 1998, while in England for medical treatment, Pinochet was arrested for crimes of genocide and terrorism. The warrant was signed by a British judge and delivered through Interpol. For two years, the Spanish government had been seeking justice for Spanish nationals who died in Chile during the Pinochet years. The arrest was unprecedented. Never before had a sovereign leader from one country been indicted by a second country and arrested in a third country. After a 15-month-long legal battle, a judge ruled that Pinochet wasn't fit to stand trial. In March 2000, he was allowed to go home. But soon after he returned, the wheels were set in motion to lift his immunity from prosecution in Chile. In December 2000, 
Pinochet was indicted for his role in the Caravan of Death, the four-day campaign of terror in 1973. Over the next five years, he faced multiple indictments for human rights violations, but he was never convicted. When he died of a heart attack in December 2006 at the age of 91, he had never spent a day behind bars. Pinochet received a military funeral that became an extravagant display for Pinochet apologists, filled with Nazi salutes and defenses of the regime by family members. Even after all these years, he still managed to command the respect of some. However, as a final insult to the despot, Socialist President Michel Bachelet, a victim of torture under Pinochet, denied him a state funeral. According to Bachelet, it would embarrass Chile's conscience to honor somebody who was involved not only in human rights issues, but even in misappropriation of public funds. A funeral fit for a president would only serve to honor Pinochet when, in fact, he was a stain on Chile's history. Pinochet's ignoble end meant that Chile could breathe a collective sigh of relief. Since 1973, the country had lived under constant fear. 30,000 people were arrested and over 3,000 executed. But Pinochet didn't act alone. Thanks to the Clinton administration's approval to declassify FBI and CIA documents, we have some understanding of America's culpability in supporting the dictator. We may never know the full extent to which America covertly helped Augusto Pinochet, but we do know that the United States played a role. Thousands of Chileans disappeared, many of them executed. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger's sole mission was to stop the spread of communism, and he was willing to cross lines to do it. Kissinger's attitude toward Pinochet extended beyond his time as Secretary of State. Carter's administration didn't force Pinochet to stop the oppression, merely curtail it. And after that, the Reagan administration sought to actively reconcile with the dictator. The legacy of Pinochet's regime can still be felt today. Thousands of Chileans are still left wondering what happened to their family members who disappeared. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next week, we move to Paraguay and we'll explore Alfredo Strassner, a dictator who infamously harbored Nazi war criminals in exile. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Dictators for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Dictators on Spotify, just open the app and type Dictators in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Dictators was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Russell Nash with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Dictators was written by Joe Guerra, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner.